I was thinking there's a good possibility that I won't be here next Sunday because uh, uh, I'm going to be up in Illinois over Labor Day weekend at a family reunion uh, and that I might be down celebrating Nathan's birthday early, which is normally the Labor Day weekend. And that's, that was my thinking. But I, so I, I'm not 100% certain that I'll be here next week. So this may work out uh, just, just right. But it's meant to be sort of the wrap-up lesson. On this series, the elders have been teaching on being people of the book. And if I were to give a title to this conclusion, it would be Established in Truth. Uh, that's what we want to be. And some of the lessons that have been talked about are things like uh, the, the essentiality of baptism, why we insist on uh, our fellowship being defined by those who've obeyed the command that Jesus Christ has given, the apostles confirmed, in order to enter into him, into his body, and have the hope of the forgiveness that he's provided, the text that we rely upon, that we are convinced, say that this must be true of us. And we offer no apology for insisting on that. Uh, the role that women have, especially in our public uh, assemblies uh, and in the particular roles that they have in terms of leadership, or some would say, well, they don't have. Uh, and, and we would say again, that's defined by clear scriptures that we are looking at and that speak to, it's not a matter of anyone being diminished or limited in their personhood. God never does that, but rather uh, there is an expression here uh, of the Godhead itself and his relationship to us that is being played out in the roles that God has given. And when you read the text, the text must be respected. It must be embraced and rejoiced in if it's understood properly. And so we talked about instrumental music. That was my last class in terms of the scriptures that we rely on for a cappella singing exclusively, which if you look at the expression itself uh, is Italian for in the manner, as Britannica would say, uh, in the manner of the church, uh, in the style of the church. Uh, why is that so? Well, because for a thousand years, that was virtually the exclusive. Uh, there's no evidence that, that the church did anything else when it came together but sing. Uh, and the instrument used was the heart. So we talked about the historical evidence as well as the biblical evidence. And that, in fact, that was the dominant uh, until the, at least the 1500s. Uh, and many of the great Reformation preachers stood against it. And it's only a recent thing that instruments have been the popular way in which people would worship. So we, we stand on the book and say, this is what the text says. And I hope that lesson, as I said, again, for us, it's a matter of conscience. And yet, even in something that is a serious matter of conscience, uh, while I cannot engage in worship that compromise my conscience. Those who are sincerely convinced otherwise on an issue like that, I will have regard for them, uh, all other things considered. Uh, as brethren, those who have believed Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, have been buried in baptism into Him, who are convinced that I'm wrong about that, they will stand or fall before the Lord. I'm not going to uh, treat them any differently. I may not be able to worship with them because my conscience won't permit it. 
And Romans 14 and other scriptures that we've looked at, 1 Corinthians 8, uh, together, should govern how we view each other with such matters, even though they are serious matters for us and should be treated seriously. And my purpose this morning is to talk about why these should be serious matters. And a great bulk of the material, as I said, that I'm going to use this morning comes from a book, The Faith Once for All, written by Jack Cottrell, who is different in his viewpoint on the instrument with me. But one thing that he and I would both agree upon, for which is an essential thing, is that it it, it matters. It matters that we look at the text. It matters that we respect the Scriptures. The faith once for all delivered must be our source uh, upon which we build our faith and lives with Jesus Christ that we simply can't say, well, this is just what I, I think looks is good or it, it, it helps me uh, or whatever our reasons may be unless we can establish our practices and what we believe and do upon the Scriptures, uh, then we're, we're building our lives, as I'll point out in a few moments, upon the shifting sand, uh, and ultimately it is going to collapse. So uh, I hope this lesson can establish that beyond any question. In Matthew 7, as Jesus is concluding the Sermon on the Mount, And he's talked about a lot of different things in the Sermon on the Mount. And he's given some specific instructions about life and prayer and morality and and money and all kinds of things that he's talked about. He's contrasted what was being said in his day and what was true uh, in terms of what the law was really meant to convey. And he confirms this is the truth of the matter, and I'm telling you it's the truth and you can rely on it. When he comes to the conclusion, he says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them can be compared to what? Wise man that builds his house on a rock. But if you hear these words and you don't act on them, you're like a foolish man who builds his house upon the sand. And the conclusion of that sermon was that when the people heard Jesus, they were amazed at his teaching. Doctrine. That's the word other places translated doctrine. His do- they were amazed at the doctrine that Jesus was imparting. And, and then the explanation given by Matthew is because he was teaching as one with authority and not as their scribes. In other words, as I read that text, Jesus is declaring, you can have complete confidence that what I'm telling you is the truth. This is the truth about these matters. It's it's based upon what is real. It has substance to it. It it is a rock. You can rely upon it. You can build your life upon it. It's the solid foundation upon which life can rest. That's what he's communicating there to them. Uh, uh, On the other hand, uh, if you fail to do that, then you're building your life on something that lacks substance, lacks reality, lacks truth. 
And in saying that, he was placing his words on par with the Old Testament scriptures. He was saying that because they understood that was true of scripture. And without going into it in this class, because I don't have time, Jesus is not contrasting the gospel as we would think of it, that is the new covenant with the old covenant. Well, here was the old covenant, but I want to tell you, that's a close reading of the text, I think, will show that in fact what Jesus is saying is the law, the truth has been misconstrued. What you're being told, what's being said is not in harmony with what the law teaches. And I'm going to tell you the truth and you can rely upon it. That's what's uh, uh, happening there. Jesus is confirming the word of God, even though it's true to say he himself, as the son of God, certainly had authority to declare uh, the truth himself. But he's not saying, oh, what Moses said is old hat. Here's something new. He's saying, now they're saying this. I'm telling you, that's not right. And that's why he himself uses the law to establish much of what he says. Now, as you look at that, what he says, what it says about the scribes, I, you know, the, my first reaction is, well, how could they talk like Jesus, right? How could they speak like the Son of God? They weren't divine. They didn't have the authority that Jesus had from the Father. That's true enough. But if I am correct and I feel certain I am, that was not really the problem. Even though I get it, because as a person who spent most of my life Uh, Since 15 years old, standing in front of people trying to do what I'm doing this morning, I understand that there are many times when I have to say, I'm not sure about this. I don't know the answer. I haven't figured this one out. I'm still studying, trying to decipher this. I I understand that problem. But I want to tell you this, with with the plain and main teachings of the gospel, we should speak with authority. There are truths declared with such clarity that those who read them should proclaim them in the same way that Jesus proclaimed the truths based upon and established upon the truth that God had already made known. These are not changing truths. And we ought to be able to stand up and say with certainty when we say to people who say, well, what do I need to do? Repent. And every one of you who are here today that want to know what you need to do, repent, turn away from sin toward God and be baptized in the name that is by the authority and trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. If you do that, you're going to have the promise that God had made long ago to Abraham and even before that up till today. And I tell you that if you reject that and you do not do it, As Jesus said, you're going to build your life on shifting sand. You can't turn from it. The scriptures declare it. It's true. And I'm not ashamed to say that. I want to say it in the best way, always. But truth that is clearly declared in scripture is something we should speak with authority. And a good chapter to look at to see that is Titus chapter 2 where Paul says to this young preacher, but you speak the things that are fitting for sound 
doctrine. There's such a thing as healthy, sound doctrine, which implies there's such a thing as unsound, unhealthy doctrine. And he goes on from that and he talks about a lot of different things. He gives instructions to older men and older women and young men and younger women and bond slaves. And he says, here's how you ought to behave and here's what you need to do. Here's the doctrine that you need to pay attention to. And he says in verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. He's saying, look, here's the instruction. And it comes from Christ himself. And then in verse 15, he says this, as he brings this to a conclusion. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Tell people with authority this, you older men, you do this. And if you don't do it, you're in trouble. You older women, you better do this. This isn't optional. Pay attention. You young men, you young women, here's, listen to what he says. It's not an option. What's clearly stated here. And don't let them say, well, that's your view of it. No, it's not my view. This is the instruction given to us by the Lord. And we need to pay attention to what he says. That we must be convinced of. I want to tell you, part of what is involved in any time we're teaching certain things where we have a truth, and we, the, the, then you get advice, which is absolutely, you know, fathers tell their children, this is the truth, but here's what I, you know, especially once they're grown, we, we don't have the same authority we have when they're 13 to say, you will do this. But we give advice and we give counsel that should be regarded with respect if it comes from wife. Elders do the same thing. Uh, teachers do that. Preachers give instructions. When we talk about, how else could you teach about family living or raising children without saying, here's my advice on how to get this done. But I understand when I'm giving advice, you can take or leave it. But when I tell you, fathers, mothers, you bring your children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, if you don't attempt to do that, you are in trouble. Because that's plainly stated. Now, if I say, here's how we did it, and you say, that won't work for, for me. Okay, that won't work for you. That doesn't mean you can disregard Ephesians in terms of what it says parents need to do with their children. That's a non-negotiable. That's clearly stated. You can't neglect it. You'll know when it's a non-negotiable. <laughs> Let no one disregard you. Uh, when it comes to things that the Bible is clearly stated, I won't be disregarded. Phil will not be disregarded. Any Bible teacher should not be disregarded if you are convinced you're standing on solid Bible truth. That cannot be spoken any other way but with authority. 
Your Bible's filled with similar exhortations that say, and what that's saying is this, you can rely on what God is saying. You can rely on it. That shouldn't cause us angst. That should give us confidence to say, how do I, what direction do I go? Uh, well, you've got a guidebook and you can trust it. You can follow it. You must follow it. If you don't follow it, you're going off into the wilderness without any pathway. You're going to be lost and your life is going to ultimately collapse. That's what Jesus, because you're building it on something that isn't real. Psalm 119 verse 142, your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness and your law is truth. Verse 151, you are near, O Lord, and all your commandments are truth. Verse 160, the sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous ordinances is everlasting. And I'll tell you where this should impress us. As we think about this book as the living and abiding word of God. That's not only true of the New Testament, that was true of the old as well. That is, it didn't lose its force and life over time. And so the last words of the Old Testament, you go back to the book of Malachi, and God is drawing this great covenant as far as the written word to conclusion, and he says this in chapter four and verse four. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. He says, remember the law that I gave to Moses at Horeb. Well, this is written probably 1,100 years after Moses, somewhere maybe uh, in that neighborhood. Time didn't diminish when God calls them back. He says, I gave the law to Moses, and it's the law you need to listen to today. And that's why when you come to the gospel stories as you look in Luke chapter 2 and verses 21 through 24, it says that Jesus was about to be circumcised on the eighth day. Why? Why were they still circumcising their children? 1,500 years. Well, actually, 2,000 years. That goes back to Abraham. Why were they doing that? Because the law commanded it, right? And you know what the text says? According to what was written according to the law. They offered up two turtle doves because he was the firstborn. Why did they do that? Read the text. Because it was according to the law. It was according to what was written. They still understood all those years didn't change the law. It didn't change their responsibility. It wasn't a matter of just the custom of the day. In Acts 10, when the, Peter has the vision of the cloud coming down, I mean, the, the sheep coming down, and, and the Lord's, all these, these animals are here, and the Lord says, rise, kill and eat. And what does Peter say? No, because I've never what? I've never eaten anything that's unholy or unclean. What? You mean you're still abiding by those dietary restrictions that are, you know, 15, you, you, Peter, 
Don't you realize Moses wrote that 1,500 years ago? We've got, we've learned a lot, or we've changed a lot. It's not a, no, Peter says, yeah, I still follow what was written. I was just trying to impress upon us. It, it, they recognized that what God said to Moses was, had not been changed or diminished. The covenant was still in force and their obligations to it. So in John 18, when you have Pilate and Jesus talking and, and, and Jesus, he says, are you king? And Jesus says, for this, this is why I've come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. He says, my kingdom's not of this world. And what was Pilate's question? What, what's truth? I, I, I don't think Pilate was asking for a list of facts. He wasn't asking for Jesus to say, well, two plus two is four, and let me give you a formula and a mathematical equation so you can understand. He's posing a philosophical question relating to the essence of truth. How do you, how do you ever know what's true and what's not true? And we've got a lot of philosophies about that that have developed through the years. One is pragmatism that says, well, it's true if it works. <laughs> if it accomplishes the purpose that you want it to accomplish, then it's true. And, and then when it comes to storytelling, it would be a matter of, uh, you know, if a general gets in front of his men before a battle or a football coach or whatever, and he says, I want to tell you about so-and-so, and, uh, and we, there's a soldier down over here, and here's what he did, and, and, he, and he gave his life in sacrifice, and he did this heroic deed, and, and maybe he made all of it up, but it doesn't matter if it inspired the men, and they said, well, that's what happened, we're going to go out and fight, and they win the battle, then it was true enough. It was truth because it served the purpose for which he intended I want to tell you how that applies in the religious realm. There are many today liberal theologians who don't believe this book. They don't trust its histor historical accuracy. But they would say, keep telling it because it serves the purpose. It, it, it keeps the people in line and keeps them, gives them hope. So the resurrection, oh, it probably didn't happen, but if it makes people feel better about life and able to endure, tell it as though it happened. It's okay. It doesn't matter whether it's true or not. It serves the purpose uh, for humanity and for people. And you're just trying to minister to them, help them. Lots of folks today who stand in pulpits have that view of the text, not here. But don't be surprised then if someone in that view, then if they look and say, but you know, it doesn't serve our purpose in matters today of gender and sexuality and uh, issues of that. So, you know, Paul was wrong about what he said about those matters. <laughs> he just got it wrong. He was just speaking from his cultural perspective or his own view as Phil was talk about, talking talk to us about. He, they were just wrong about that. No, they weren't wrong about it. These are God's spokesmen. This is God's truth being declared. But it has its impact. They insisted, we're telling you historical reality. And in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, if Christ isn't raised from the dead, we're false witnesses of God. We're not telling you the truth. And it is true. We're without hope and we're of all men most to be pitied. But he affirmed it as truth. 
And a great text regarding that is in Acts 25 and verse 19 when Festus is trying to give his account to Agrippa about why Paul was on trial. And, and he said, you know, when they brought me before him, before him before me, I was expecting to hear some really terrific charges. <laughs> they wanted me to put this man to death after all. So I expected to hear crimes worthy of death, but it turned out it was only matters about their religion and that Paul affirmed that this guy named Jesus who was dead, Paul was saying and affirming he's still alive. That was an accurate account. Paul said the man, Jesus, who everybody agreed was dead, Paul was saying he's still alive. He was raised from the dead. They spoke it as truth, not pragmatic truth, as truth based upon witnesses and evidence that this was a reality upon which life could be built. A more dangerous view of truth is is relativism, which says, you know, statements are true relative to the circumstances that they are made in. And that's where you hear this, your truth, my truth. And what's true for you now, in fact, may not be true for you later. Existentialism and postmodernism are well-known products of of relativism. Postmodernism says that, you know, any and every viewpoint on, on practically any subject must be tolerated and given some validity. Every view except one. And that's the view that says there is absolute truth, objective truth. If you say that, that's, that's to be rejected. Well, what happens when that invades Christianity? <laughs> You end up with people saying, well, there's no right or wrong way to understand the Bible. There's no correct interpretation of Scripture. You have your interpretation of it. You have your view of it. I have my view of it. And we really can't figure out what's right and what's wrong. And so everybody is entitled to their own perspective. And those who stand by this would say, you know, human beings are just too finite and too limited to be able to have certainty about anything. And even if they do, their ability to communicate with each other is flawed. Communication just is too difficult to be certain that we even know for sure what that person is saying and that we've received it correctly. We just can't come up with a certainty about those matters. And even if God in His infinite wisdom made known His will, we humans are so limited and flawed, we can't be sure that we understand it properly. Well, there's some fallacies with relativism that I certainly in just a few minutes can't explore deeply. But I want to tell you when People ever say that you can't establish any objective truth whatsoever and, and there's no such thing. We're, we're undermining. Basically, you can't be wrong about anything because if you can be wrong about something for which human beings generally agree there's a, a lot folks can be wrong about, but you can't be wrong about anything unless there is a truth that is the rule by which errors and mistakes can be judged. There has to be a standard. 
But underlying this concept of what I'm going to call biblical relativism is the idea that unless you have 100% certainty, you can't be sure. And that truth is relative. And it's wrong to think that all matters of truth have to be demonstrated by a mathematical kind of formula. That's a wrong-headed thing. That in order to call something truth, you have to be able to establish it in the same way that you establish two plus two is four. That's, that's not so. And a re- related mistake is that you need a hundred percent certainty before you can take a decisive step or commit yourself to certain beliefs. That's not so. That's a serious error to equate probability with uncertainty. I love this statement by Cottrell. He says, where the evidence and logic show that a statement is true with a high degree of probability, it is both irrational and immoral to deny it. We establish lots of things beyond a reasonable doubt with clarity and certainty, and we're happy with that. Much of our lives are lived on the plane of, if someone challenges to say, are you 100% certain that that plane is going to get not fall down from the sky? No, no I'm not, but, but I have enough certainty that I'm putting my life on the line in terms of getting on it and riding. The, my, I live my life upon that basis, and morally as well. We make many judgments of serious matters based upon our convictions, not just willy-nilly of what we want, but the probability of truth morally to say, absolutely, as I look at the evidence, I have certainty about this. And to turn my back upon it would be an an immoral, wrong-headed thing to do. There are those that say, you know, you can't prove with 100% certainty that smoking causes cancer. I've heard that all my life growing up in Kentucky. That was, well, maybe that's true. But there sure seems to be a mountain of evidence that can give you conviction about a choice that you make regarding it. And our courts certainly have felt that way uh, without any doubt. But to the same reasoning goes to, well, unless you can be 100% certain and prove to me with that degree that Jesus rose from the dead, I'm not obligated to put any trust in him. Well, that's just relying on a technicality, I'm going to tell you. It is not reasonable in terms of the evidence that is available. And I'm going to tell you, that's not a legitimate barrier to belief and action. You don't have to have absolute certainty to have a high probability and therefore a moral and practical certainty upon which you can build with confidence. That's what we need to appreciate. And it's a mistake to believe that it's impossible to have 100% certainty on matters of, of fact uh, under any circumstance. And this is, I realize I'm very limited in my knowledge and in my ability to communicate and in my ability to understand others. Uh, I'm limited. 
But I am confident of this. Number one, God is the repository of absolute truth. He is omniscient. He knows all. He's not limited. And He has communicated His truth to us in His Word. And we can trust that. He's given us that ability, that language, and all of the things that might be said about language and communication for all the things that philosophers might say about its inadequacies, guess what? Human beings keep on communicating, don't they? They keep on telling each other, I love you, and understanding what that means. They keep forming relationships. They keep establishing uh, codes of conduct. They have court systems. Uh, They do all of those things. They communicate. They do say that's right and that's wrong. We have the ability to do it. And if you're doing it, trusting what God has said, you're building on solid ground so that our Lord would say, you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. God desires, Paul writes, all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. There's truth to be found. So as a eunuch is riding along in his chariot and he's reading Isaiah, yes, we have some limitations. And when God's man appears to him and he's reading and he said, do you understand what you're reading? He had the humility to say, well, I need somebody to guide me. I'm not figuring this out. I don't think I can, can unless someone who has a better understanding can teach me. And at that point, Philip told him, Isaiah is talking about Jesus, the one who died and has been risen, and to whom men can be united in confidence and faith through baptism. We know that because he said, there's water, Why? what hinders me from being baptized? And they stopped and went down into the water, and Philip baptized him, and he went on his way, that eunuch rejoicing. There's so many scriptures, uh, you should just go home and look up phrases like sound doctrine. Beware false prophets. All of those texts would mean nothing. Their time will come when men will not endure sound doctrine, Paul warns Timothy. That time's going to come. Peter says, beware of false prophets. There were false prophets among the people in the Old Testament. There'll be false prophets among you. John says, test the spirits to make sure that they are from God. It's an important matter. And all those scriptures would be meaningless if you can't distinguish between what's right and wrong, what's true and what's not true, what is sound doctrine and what is unsound doctrine. And so as we study these lessons, I want to tell you, we should always have in our hearts the commitment of the noble Bereans who is, they heard Paul teaching, they searched the scriptures to make sure the things that were being said were so. They knew they could rely on the Scriptures because it was God's mind revealed. And anything that could not be established upon them, they knew they could not trust. And that still is where we stand today. Take your Bible, read it. Listen. Pay attention. Build your lives upon it with confidence. Jesus believed it. 
He believed the Scripture. I trust Him. And urge you to do the same. We will, God, God enabling and God willing, forever be people of the book.